0: Welcome to First Check, a podcast so you can learn how to be the next great venture capitalist or angel investor. You've seen the Ubers, Googles, and Pindos of the world, the 10x to 100x returns, and you want to know how you can get in on the action. As a partner at Co-Founders Capital, host of First Check, Tim McLaughlin, has invested over $43 in startups. And on this podcast, he's going to share with you what works and what doesn't so you can be ready to write your first check. Today's guest is Hirsch Tapadia, co-founder and CEO of Allstacks, a single source for software leaders to track strategic initiatives, team performance, and trends to eliminate surprises and enhance efficiency in software building. Hirsch and Allstacks, for Tim and co-founders capital, it's the one that got away. Co-founders had the opportunity to invest, and they didn't. You'll hear why in a few minutes, but Sex did get funding and has grown considerably. It actually raised another round, $4 million, in July of 2021, after this recording. Here's the host of First Check, Tim McLaughlin.
1: How you doing, Hirsch? Doing well. So, Hirsch, you and I had an opportunity to meet each other years ago go through some diligence together as an investor and entrepreneur. And so we got a lot of stuff that we can share with our audience today. But why don't we start off? Why don't you just give us your background as an entrepreneur?
2: Let's see. My journey starts right before I started college. I, I figured out why I didn't want to be a big company guy because I got to work at IBM. And working at IBM gave me this really one clarifying moment where They have this tool, it's called Blue Pages. And what this tool does, it's like LinkedIn. But one of the features of the tool is it shows you all the layers of management between you and the CEO. And I was scrolling through my list of managers to get to the CEO. And mine was two pages long. And I was like, well, I can't. They're like, there's no way for me to make an impact here. At that moment, I was like, well, I don't, this is not what I want to do. Then I got the opportunity to join the engineering entrepreneurs program at NC State, and I got to experience it from inside the university, starting a company, had some really great mentors there, actually spun a company out of NC State, it was called MedCount. It was a tool to use image processing to tell you if you had a tuberculosis infection. It's targeted at kind of the developing world, which was interesting. It was 2009, you know, if you hadn't heard is not the best time <laughs> to be a 22 year old electrical engineer, starting a medical device company focused on Eastern, Eastern Africa and Southeast Asia. But I got to get it acquired into a company spinning out of Johnson Johnson. And I got to join as a co-founder through that acqui-hire and I got to hire back my whole team. And I spent six years there running product and engineering. In that I learned a ton. We did some capital raises. We, sold some big contracts, we were in a bunch of different industries, and I was running product, I was building an engineering team. At some point, you know, as the company kind of plateaued, I said, you know, I think I want to do something new. Fortunately, Jeremy Freeman, who's my current CTO and co-founder, him and I had worked together through this whole journey. He was first employee of the first company, first employee of the second company. We liked working together and said, let's go, let's go do something new. That Took us into some consulting work where we just listened for problems and then kind of eventually through a series of twists and turns, um, one of which where we met you, Tim, uh, we got all stacks off the ground and went through the NC Idea process, got it funded, started getting customers, realized that we need to pivot the company, we pivoted the company, and that gave us the moment to really kind of kick this thing off. Went out to Techstars in Austin, got the company funded, and, and here we are. Now I get to be on podcasts with you
1: now now you get to be on podcast that's okay. with me so so lesson to the audience a couple lessons that we have here is is to uh fast track going through those two lists of two pages of promotions to get from software developer one to c e o you just leave and start something and if there's it? only if there's only four employees then you you can't be more than four people removed from the c e o right
2: right exactly
1: <laughs> that's one way to do it. So, Hirsch, let's give the audience a little bit of background. So several years ago, before you went to Techstars and got funded, and we at Co-Founders Capital entered into diligence with Allstacks. We talked with a lot of customers, and we really liked the problem. We found a real need for the problem. So why don't you talk about what Allstacks was at the time, and then I'll fill our audience in on how that investment journey panned out for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it was interesting. So we we were doing software consulting work, and we realized that there was this problem that people needed to get access to everything they needed to do their jobs, and if they left the company, they needed to get removed from all the access. We started building a product around that because we heard from a bunch of customers that that process was really painful.
1: So Um, access, when you say access, you mean access to
2: like Gmail and Salesforce and HubSpot and you know GitHub and all the all the tools that any particular person in their in their or would use on a day-to-day basis. And the amount of time it took to get all that set up was was a lot. And so we said, oh, I think you know with all these APIs we can connect stuff up and, and build something here. So we built out a alpha product. And started testing it with customers. We spent a bunch of time with customers just asking them, you know, how much pain do you feel when you do this? There's actually a really interesting thing we'll get to later, which is about the when you do this. How much pain do you feel when you do this is different than how often do you feel this pain. But for the question we asked, we got a ton of resonance, right? And so we built out the product, got into a bunch of beta conversations. We won an NC idea grant for that particular iteration of all stacks right about the time where we were in the finals for the NCAA is when, when we met you and David.
1: All right, And, and Hirsch, and, and, and so everyone knows, CoFounders Capital, we typically invest in pre-revenue companies. So part of our diligence process is joining entrepreneurs and helping them try to go sell the product, set up meetings, sit with them in the pitches and see if we can sell this. And so Hirsch and I have sat in the room together on several occasions trying to sell the original All Stacks product. I'll talk a little bit about where we fell out on that. So after several months of diligence and and loving working with Hirsch and the team, we had trouble finding the buyer to make to pull the trigger on the decision after the the beta. Everyone experienced the problem. We thought it was a well defined problem, and ultimately, we at co-founders and and Hirsch we we talked and we decided an investment at that time wasn't the right decision for us. And after that, Allstacks really started. To take off and really just flew past where co-founders capital could make an investment, which often leads us back to thinking, maybe we should have just invested in the entrepreneur rather than the idea at the time. And so we look back and we recognize that. But Hirsch, when after we made that decision not to invest and you kept moving on with all stacks, tell us about what happened.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of things. You know, we saw two potential futures for that iteration of the product. One was like an aqua hire path, right? If we were just managing some SaaS connections and maybe there's some SaaS spend. Like we saw a bunch of competitors pop up. And as we really thought about the market, we said, you know, somebody is going to figure this out, but it's going to be a much bigger, highly capitalized thing to figure this out. And everyone else is going to get acqui You know, we didn't see the path in there, like the acqui wasn't worth it. And the highly capitalized thing probably wasn't going to happen to us at that time, based on what we knew at that time in the beginning of 2017. And frankly, it's kind of played out that way. So everyone that did the narrow scope stuff we did, they all have been acquired. On the other hand, there's this company called Rippling. Rippling, uh, which started out doing exactly the same thing, but expanded their scope quite a bit, is kind of blowing it out of the water. Uh, I think they did like a $40 million Series B with Kleiner Perkins and, and what their key was that. They really understood the HR space. It was Patrick Conrad of Zenefits fame running the company. They went really far out. Like we were focused on SaaS apps, and they were—they went to like your laptop will be purchased, key card will show up, you'll get your T-shirt. Like literally everything for a big enterprise to onboard a company, they would handle. And the fact is, that takes a lot, right? It takes a lot of capital to get there. So we, we thought about that for a while and, and didn't feel like we had the access. And we started thinking about, well, what of the product does resonate? And what was interesting was people got really excited about this one part of the product, which was productivity analytics. We had this one feature in there that would show you like how much are people doing inside of all these tools. And when we started to dig into that enthusiasm for that one feature, we saw some trends in the market. One was that productivity analytics tools had hit every category. Sales analytics tools, marketing analytics tools, customer success analytics tools, on and on. But there was nothing in engineering. And with there being nothing in engineering, we said something must be going on there. We reflected on our own experiences trying to explain and quantify how engineering is running in other companies. And we were like, you know, we felt that pain. And then we went out And we interviewed 50 engineering managers, said, we want 50 coffees with 50 people. And we want 50 people to tell us they care about the problem. We want 50 people to tell us they would pay for a solution. We don't have a solution, but they would pay for a solution. And so we just started cold contacting people on LinkedIn. You know what? I sat down, I met 50 requests and I sat down for 50 coffees. And so it was one for one. And 50 of those 50 told me that they had a problem figuring out what was going on. And 50 of those 50 told me that they were searching for a solution that they could pay for.
1: Well, other than you being a super nice guy, just the fact that they wanted to come sit down and have coffee with you meant that they were experiencing that problem and, and were willing to take time out of their day to discuss a possible solution. Yeah, Hersh, I want I want to get back on on the new product. But one thing that you said I thought was really interesting I know that it can be very frustrating for entrepreneurs when they're talking to investors because out of both sides of their mouth, investors say, we want you to be focused. We want you to solve a very specific pain point with your solution. But you then just talked about the other company, that Rippling, that's, doing, that's crushing it in the market and how they solved the entire onboarding process and took a much yep. wider uh, perspective at the employee onboarding problem. And so you hear this from investors, solve a specific pain point, but we want you to be a big enough solution that you matter and you get implemented and you're sticky. What are your thoughts on that? What's the frustration around that, I guess, being an entrepreneur and and hearing that from investors?
2: You know, you cannot apply that advice generically. It has to be personalized to the context of the company and the team. And, And there's a great degree of risk in building out the total solution, right? So if you are an HR expert, you have spent your entire life in HR, you've, you've been onboarding people all day long, every day, you're trying to build out this product, like rippling, like there's, it's a binary outcome. And that binary outcome also hinges on that binary value proposition, right? And so you have to come in with a lot of conviction to say that this is the level of value we have to provide for this thing to really take off. Now, rippling did a lot of things along the way, to kind of scale us there, but they they clearly had a vision that was quite broad that they were working towards. And then they were able to raise the capital to go execute on the vision. If you can't do that, all of those things, you have to find that middle way path along the way that's going to iteratively get you there. And you also have to realize your outcomes may be different, right? There's a institutional knowledge, there's a person, there's a market, there's the investor base that you have access to. All those things have to align to go hit that big thing. And then you still have the risk of slightly missing the mark, and then you might not hit it. The iterative path gives you a lot more flexibility, but you might find yourself on a growth vector that never gives you the big outcome. So you have to be careful there also. So it's just, it's all contextual.
1: Hirsch, I think you're starting to put your investor hat on a little bit because one of the things that we ask is, if we make this investment, and when, when we were talking to you, our check size was $300,000, $400,000, it's now closer to a $1 million, which gives us more flexibility. But where is this three or $400,000 going to get this company and access to what additional follow-on capital at that point? So when you're about halfway through your burn with that three or four hundred thousand dollars, have you created enough value in the organization that now you can go raise that three, four five million dollars, whatever you need to execute on your strategy? And for our early investors that are listening, that's an important thing. There is financial risk of the company not being able to raise the follow on round of financing that they need to execute on their plan, especially if you as an early investor can't provide it and don't have that option.
2: You have to know what game you're playing, right? And then you have to play the hell out of that game. And if, <laughs> if you're misaligned there, there's no point.
1: That's right. That's why we see a lot of B2C kind of companies that come and pitch us and they say, and then after I get a small user base, I'm going to raise $20 million to acquire you know, 200,000 users. We say that's great. Where's that capital coming from? Can you explain to me what that funding process looks like? And sometimes that can be a challenge, especially you know geographically if you're not close to the larger funds in the valley too, or you know Boston, New York, wherever their access to that type of fund and that type of capital is. It's important to recognize that. So so Hirsch, take me through. So you made the pivot in your product. You had the 50 cups of coffee. Uh, what was the next step then?
2: At that point, we were able to put together a small amount of angel money basically give the thing a shot we went out got an early champion type customer that believed in what we're doing we started you know it, it created a series of events right so we're building the product we presented at CD somebody at CD took us up to DC somebody at in, in the DC conference took me over to the Maryland angel group that's uh, aligned with University of Maryland College Park and I met some really really impressive investors there who gave us a chance and a little bit of capital behind us. At that point, we'd put together like 150 grand and and we got into Techstars down in Austin, you know, got down to Austin, flew down there, spent four months there, started building relationships there, iterating the product along the way. We got a handful of folks in Austin who really like believed in what we were doing and believed in us. And they started, Helping us, you know, the main introductions they introduced us to the the first hire we made, who was down in Austin. And there's a fund down there called S3 Ventures. There's a guy named Rajiv Bala who had the background to understand why what we were doing was important and saw something in us that, that he cared about. And he spent a lot of time with us. And so he introduced us to our first employee. And then we spent the summer, you know, fundraising. And building the product and getting customers and doing all that stuff, and it eventually ended up back in um, back in Texas and S three anchored our pre seed round and kind of got the first million bucks or so into the company. And at that point, we were able to staff up to like five people, and we decided, okay, let's figure out what makes this company a painkiller product. And Adam, who's our who's the guy in Texas, head of growth. Adam and I spent the next year with the customer, and I think this was maybe one of the most important decisions we made, which is we didn't go after revenue. We actively avoided going after revenue to make sure that the product we were building was the right product for our customers and not something where we would get like 100% churn in a year.
1: Well, we Hirsch, we say that a lot of our companies and companies we look at are uncontaminated by revenue, but I don't think it's because they made the conscious decision to avoid revenue like you did. Sometimes yeah. it's just hard to get that revenue. Sometimes that's, it's hard that's to interesting. Get that
2: revenue, and we yeah. chose not to get that revenue because if revenue would have us on a path, we'd have to service these customers on the features we sold them on, which maybe aren't the features they need, but... It's the faster horse problem, right? Like Henry Ford says, yes, ask, ask them what they want, they want a faster horse. The customer can't tell the difference between anything like a 1x to 9x improvement, can't tell the difference. It has to be a 10x improvement or it's less than 10x improvement. And so we have this concept instead of all stacks of the expected and unexpected innovation. And we felt like we were in the expected innovation it's iterative it's a little bit better than than what you had and we needed to find that unexpected innovation that was going to anchor the fundamental premise of what we were doing and so we spent a year on that like a thousand demos and you know plus or minus a hundred it literally was in that order of magnitude and we just listened to the customers and what we found was that the centerpiece the thing that people wanted it's a people thing, right? I want to manage expectations. I want to mitigate an emotional response. I want to get aligned with my peers so we can work together to make progress on our problems. And in our sphere that was around expectation management around when is your software gonna be delivered? Why is it then? Why is it not when you wanted it to be? And how do we find out as early as we can so that we can make plans to move forward? And so it's forecasting. And when we put the forecasting suite into the product, our pipeline blew up. So we had five people, we had tons of pipe, a lot of it in the enterprise. We had no capacity to service this pipeline. And so we said, okay, I think we know what we need to do. And so at that point, it was back half of 2019, and we went out and we raised the next round. And So we flew up to Boston and New York and spent most of our time there. Um, and a fund up in Boston called Hyperplane Venture Capital. They they put the money in, you know, really, really understood the vision, focused on data and machine learning. Got some participation by a fund called Polaris Partners up in Boston to come in. and A couple others, Wildcat Ventures out in California, Uncommon Denominator in New York. And then our existing investors, S3 and, and Moneta Ventures in Texas and California. And then a bunch of our angels came in as well and doubled down. And uh we went out, hired ten more people in the next eight weeks, and by the end of January we were a team of seventeen and we could go and really really start selling this thing. And so now we are we've grown ten times over the course of this year in twenty twenty, grown every quarter through COVID, grown bigger and bigger customers, and are working on the series A.
1: That's great. What a great story there. And so Listen, you've gone a path of raising capital from angels, from VCs. You've gotten non dilutive funding. You've gotten yeses and nos from VCs and angels both. Talk about the difference when you pitch an angel investor versus when you pitch a venture capital investor. What are the differences in your pitch?
2: You know, um, it depends on the stage also. When I was pitching angels and I was pitching the seed investors, the pitch was actually really similar in what I was saying. And those people were evaluating me and Jeremy and, and Adam, right? Ultimately, they're backing the people. What we were trying to get aligned on was, are we interested in the space that we're collaborating on? Is this the type of company you would want to fund, right? And there's, there's some table stakes, right? If it's a B2C angel or B2C seed fund, and you're a B2B company like at some point. Right. So once all the table stakes stuff was set up, I like the space, I'm interested in it, then it really got down to like the psychology of who we were and how we were approaching our problems and was the market worth investing in. And with the angels, it was they're all operators who invested in me. They knew the struggle they knew what we were going through and they had felt the pain of our problem and they liked us and they gave us a shot um, with the seed fund it was a similar story but farther along right a lot like most of our investors let's say 95 percent of our investors have operator backgrounds and we love that because our operator background investors are just incredible because they have a lot of empathy for, for what's happening but they're also not afraid to push us to do more and with the seed stage, it was a lot of like, well, what have you learned that proves that this thing is worth trying to institutionalize enough that there's a shot here? Is the market borne out? Is the product being received well? Do you have any customers that are interested in what you're doing and, and able to offer feedback? Where are you going to go from here? What are you going to spend the money on? That was another thing. You really have to know what you're going to spend the money on. That combined with like what is the momentum of the round, right? And that was really important, in the seed stage. We got lucky, we got introduced to just absolutely excellent seed funds across the board, across the country. And they dug in with us, they spent time with us. And I was very transparent with everyone. I said, here's all the people I'm talking to. Here's where we're on the process. Here's the people that dropped out and here's why they dropped out. And here's the people that are in and here's why they're in.
1: When I talk about our entrepreneurs and our portfolio that are successful, it's very rarely the entrepreneur that says, I talked to this investor and they really, really like us. And I really think that they're going to be the one to put the check in. The entrepreneurs that are successful, that I can tell you're going to be successful is I just had 40 conversations. I think 15 of them could be potential leads. I feel really, really good about seven of them. And I'm going to keep working that funnel because, like you said, they fall off, and there's a lot of deals and a lot of things that can happen outside of the entrepreneur's control. And you can just tell from your story with the amount of investors that you brought in and how you, you know, uh, that there was attrition. That you know, you took more of that approach of the successful entrepreneur. I'm I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I I, mm-hmm. I think I think that it's important being a venture capitalist or any investor is a pretty humbling business, and you look and everybody kind of has their anti-portfolio, the ones that they wish they did yeah. something different on early on. I'm going to critique our diligence process with you, and I'd love to get your take on it from the other side. I think that this could be kind of fun while exposing you know, ourselves for a little bit. So if I had to look back and, and learn something from our diligence process, I would say we spent more than enough time working together and getting to know you and the team. Would you agree with that? I think so. Okay. So
2: I I would say my only caveat to that is that there's a level of open-ended exploration you need to have with a person to really get to know them. And so you spend a lot of time together, but it's very directed. You know, one of the things like we did with with you folks, if you remember, is we went and got a drink with the spouses,
1: right? Right.
2: And that was actually a really important moment for us because having our wives talk about our interactions with each other it like illuminated what do we think is going to go well what do we think is not going to go well because they know blind spots that we don't have that we don't see because they're blind spots right and so there's this like it's outside of the operating modality how are you going to support each other how do you think this person is going to think when it's not a sales conversation and you have to get to know people on that vector for i mean for your whole life right it's not just investor relationship it's who you get married to it's who who you hire who you choose to work with who you choose not to work with like that breath i think you guys spend a lot of time and it's not that you don't do that but it's almost like is there a way to formalize a way to do the informal getting to know each other and that's hard
1: you'll you'll be happy to know that we've taken strides to do exactly that i don't know how it's going to work out but we're thinking about it so, so if I had to further critique, I would say we found entrepreneurs that we wanted to invest in. And mm-hmm. then the next step, in you and Jeremy, the next step was then saying, okay, do they have the, the product right in the market that we want to invest in this product? Have they found a pain point and a solution? And that's the part that I don't think at the time we could really get comfortable with. So if you were to put on your investor hat back then, and you say, I have, an, I have entrepreneurs that may not have the product right now, how important would it be for your investment just to say, but I do have the entrepreneurs that I believe will figure it out?
2: I think it depends on, I mean, it's, it's contextual, right? Like we were talking about earlier, how big is your fund? What kind of outcomes are you looking for? What is your thesis? Where can you go from there, right? If you have a $12 million fund, you're writing $300,000 checks. And the thesis is act like a, you know, an angel in a sense, like a super angel. You have to be prepared to either accept that in order to capitalize this company in a way that they can go raise fall on capital, we're going to own a small slice of this and it's going to get diluted. But because we're going for the massive outcome, we're hoping that it will all wash out at the end and we'll, we'll do really well. Or we're going to take a more aggressive slice of this. and. The trajectory is going to be inherently limited because the economics change. And so at that point, are we going for like a single or a double or a triple, right? It's not going to be the home run. Maybe it's going to be, we put in 3 million bucks into this company we get a 30 to $50 million exit. And that's a great outcome for a lot of people, right? But it materially changes the trajectory. And it means that you have to be in a different place when you put that money in to achieve that outcome. You can't put $300,000 in on an idea looking for a $30 million outcome and then hope that you know, we can build the product along the way. You're going to blow through all the cash and then you're not going to have enough progress to raise more money. But that's that, right? If you're, if you're putting $300,000 in on an idea and you capitalize the company in a way that it's like an angel check, it's not a venture institutional seed round, right? With institutional seed round level of ownership. Then what you're focusing on as an as an investor at that point is the ability to help get that person in front of the institutional seed investor that can write a $3 million check. And you're just trying to help them prove out enough and get them in front of enough people that that $3 million check is available to do the institutional seed round. So it's all philosophy, right? And the right product depends on which type of thesis you have.
1: I think that's a great response. And I I think that most entrepreneurs that come and pitch us don't look at their investment from the perspective of the fund. What is the fund or the investor? What is the outcome they're trying to get to? And am I the right fit for this fund at this time based on what their objectives are? And that's a good thing, I think, for every entrepreneur to think about before they go in and pitch. Now, I I would just...
2: Tell every entrepreneur, like, do you understand fund math, right? Like we have a $25 million fund, half of it's going into the first two checks of the fund and the rest of it's going to go into the, into the later rounds. And of those half, you know, you got three partners, each one can be on 10 boards. So you can only do 30 deals, right? So divide it out and say, okay, we're going to do what? A million and a half dollars per initial first two checks in a company. So it's probably going to be like. 750, 750, or it's going to be 500, a million, something like that. So that's your check size. What is that going to create for you? And then, does that person want to be a lead? And if they want to have, you know, 10% ownership threshold, then 500K that you have a you have a $5 million post money valuation, like you can back into all of this just from the the PR pieces on the website. <laughs> if it doesn't match, don't go talk to them.
1: Yeah, that's great. And, and at some point along the way, they need to three, four X, they're fun knowing that half of the companies may go out of business. Um, one thing you said before, which I thought was interesting is you talked about your angel investors that came in and then you spent a lot of time not going after revenue. If I'm an angel investor, one the reason that revenue is so important is because it's tangible. I know that there's growth in the company because I have customers and people paying me money. Even though what you said is also true, which is now sometimes you're stuck to those customers and what they want and what they demand. So how were you able to show your investors, your early angel investors, that there was progress being made when there wasn't revenue?
2: Well, you get evaluated on the metric you put out. So So what
1: metric did you put out?
2: So what we were trying to figure out was what would make this product tick, right? So we looked at how many people were we talking to, what were, you know, we were focused on the top of the funnel not the bottom of the funnel. How many people were we talking to? What was our conversion rates? Were we getting into conversations? Were we getting into demos? Were we starting trials? Were people excited about the product, right? Those are those what we were talking about. And we were talking about it with the intention to get to the point where we could say, we understand enough about this customer that if we were to invest in the sales apparatus, we would be able to go and tackle this customer. We know why it works. And the angels I have also understood that because they'd also all been through it. Right. Right. If you have someone who's never done that before, you're going to be misaligned. And if they're not betting on your vision, right? If you're an angel investor, and I think about this a lot myself, like if you're an angel investor and you put money into a company and, and you're like saying, I want a financial return on like a, you know, I want this much IRR, right? If you if you have a spreadsheet and you're trying to match IRR on on a regular basis and you're thinking dividends and stuff like you're you're a small time private equity person and that's not going to work, right? If you're an angel investor investing in a startup, you're investing in a vision and a person. And so you're looking for reasons why you no longer have conviction in the person or you no longer have conviction in the vision. And then what you're enabling for them is the chance. You're giving them the chance in a way it's charity, right? And the, the power dynamic that's really interesting is that, like, the founder doesn't view it as charity. The founder views it as a lifeline. The founder says, I, I have the ability to try because this person took a bet on me. And as an angel, you have to look at it as charity to say, like, I like this guy. I'm going to give him a chance. I like this person. She, she has an incredible experience, and I think she's on to something. I'm giving him a chance, right? But you can't assume you're going to get a return in any, any reasonable reasonable timeline and that's the power dynamic the founders doing their damnedest to get you that return and the angel's saying you know at least they got the opportunity to try
1: that's a that's a great way to think about it i'm sure some angels think about it that way i'm sure some don't but it's a great perspective from you to have i think that leads me very seamlessly into my last question which is Hirsch, Allstacks is wildly successful. You can start writing huge angel checks back into whatever community you want to write them into. So you decide to start angel investing after your exit and you meet with 10 companies. You have to write a $100,000 check into one of the 10. But you only get to ask one question to each company. What question do you ask?
2: Why do you care about this so much? Because... I'm trying to figure out why do I care about you and I can figure out why I care about you. If you can tell me why you care about this, it comes down to, I'm just saying like, I want to give Tim a chance. And do I, do I think Tim deserves the chance I can give him?
1: I think that's great. I think it stays true to your uh, philosophy behind writing angel check. So that's great. Well, hopefully uh, that day will come soon and we'll be co-investors on deals and be wildly successful together, all right?
2: Let's hope so. All right. We're, doing our, we're all doing our damnedest.
1: <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> well, Hirsch, thanks so much. I thought very, very thoughtful uh, insights that you had for, for everybody. So thanks for joining me. It
2: was a lot of fun. Thanks for right. That was
0: Hirsch Tapadilla, CEO of Allstacks. From around Hirsch, Find him on LinkedIn or visit allstacks.com. Also, for more upcoming news on this podcast and an upcoming course from Tim, sign up for our newsletter at firstcheckpodcast.com. And if you like this show, please subscribe, rate, and review on any podcast app, including the one you're listening to right now. And find us on Instagram or Twitter at firstcheckpod. This podcast is a production of EarFluence. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on First Check.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Jason Gillikin, CEO of EarFluence, which produces this podcast. And if you made it this far, I'm guessing you like this podcast. So I would love for you to check out another podcast that we produce.
0: Welcome to the Hustle & Gather podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Dana. We're sisters and serial entrepreneurs. We started our first business with a Craigslist ad, planning a wedding for $125 each. We built a floral business and then shut it down because we kind of hated it. We built our venue on sweat, caffeine, and maxed out credit cards. But we scaled to 16 team members and we can't imagine working for anyone else. We drink. And we swear. And we talk about all the bullshit that goes into running a business. Tune in to Hustle & Gather on any podcast app or visit hustleandgather.com.